0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I satisfy my curiosity about anything I feel like, really, and you listen to what I've found out. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: So... Now, this week, we are on Poison Squad Part 3.
1: We're through the origin stories, the back, the background story. Well, I mean, not of all the individual pieces of the Poison Squad, but of, of the idea of the Poison Squad, at least.
0: Yeah, so, interestingly, the Poison Squad is a very small part of this story, and oh. I'll talk about it for a few minutes. And, and, and then I'll, uh, I'll give you some more info... Probably next week. I see. Um, But the thing is, is that Poison Squad just, it took some time. It took a lot of time to get the results for each preservative. And so the law ended up being passed before Wiley was done with all of his experiments. Mm -hmm. Um, But I will say this right now. This big national food safety law we are working towards that we will almost be at by the end of this part. You know, we're we're a few months away by the end of this episode, is what I'm saying. And...
1: There's a lot of episodes.
0: <laughs> there will be one more after this, and that's it.
1: Oh, that's, that's less than I a promise. month. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, you made me lose my train of thought. I do that. What was I talking about? I was talking about Poison Squad mm-hmm. and the law, mm-hmm. and how this law... Yeah, we're working towards this law, and it seems... Like, woohoo, you're finally getting somewhere. But the law was not the be-all, end-all of this struggle, and it wasn't really a very good law. Sure. <laughs> they didn't actually pass a really great law until the 1930s. Um, so Wiley's Poison Squad results really did help help people to see why, you know, the law maybe should have some actual regulations attached to it and some actual teeth. As opposed to just, just being like a lip
1: service or something.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so as I said, we're not going to get quite to the end of this episode. I think uh, I think next episode uh, I'm going to finish the story and then try to kind of have an interesting related uh, factoid that's a little less dry than the history part for some people. <laughs> sure. I'll try and find something interesting. Um, and yeah, I'm just like going to restate as I said many times. I like to preface this, I'm just so frustrated reading about all these politicians hundred years ago. Uh, Cause it's, it's like nothing changes it's like the same attitudes and the same restrict, like the same things are restricting anything from getting done. Mm-hmm. And it's, Oh God, it's frustrating to read that we're at the same place. We have gone nowhere in the last 120 years. Got it. <laughs> uh, with that, Lovely note out of the way. Um, let's get going, okay? With part three of Poison Squad.
1: Perfect. Well, how about you teach me something?
0: So, we're in 1902 to set the stage. We're
1: of course we are in mm-hmm. 1902. I can picture it.
0: Wiley gets five thousand dollars from Congress to do his Poison Squad trials,
1: so he employs two people for two months. <laughs>
0: I looked, I looked up all the money values in this um, on the internet. You can just oh. type in, like, 19, on 1902 dollars on the internet. Okay. Um, anyway, so that's about $150,000.
1: Okay, so you can US, employ a few US people. U.S. dollars.
0: Um, it was a third of what he had asked them for. Yeah, sure. But them's the breaks, right? So he had to save money somehow, and he turned to the basement of the Department of Agriculture building into their, like, kitchen and dining room for the poison squad. Sure. Um, So, here's the basic study design. We have young, robust government workers. Male, male government workers fed fresh food without preservatives or additives, substitutes, anything. And then they just had... Some of them eat it and some of them not and kind of alternated it and just kept track of everyone's um, vitals and stuff so you may be wondering what the government thing
1: <laughs> yeah
0: um, so they actually limited applicants to the quote upright people who had already passed the civil service exam any government employee clerk click whatever had to pass this exam basically like a background and personality check so that some kind of security level like clearance for because they want to make sure
1: these people aren't going to cheat on their diets (laughs) and the government exam Um, is a good indicator
0: that it was one thing but like they also didn't want anyone talking to the press like they just had Mm. a whole they had they wanted a certain type of person that wasn't doing this for any kind of attention no, well what were they doing it for? They were doing it for f- free food. That was they weren't being paid. These men were volunteers. Um, and the government employees were more than willing to volunteer because they made so little money. Really? That it was like a life-changing experience to have their food costs covered for a year or two. Okay. Um but here's the thing. So they couldn't eat or drink anything between meals because all their food and drink has to come from these kitchens. So, like, no water. Nothing between your three meals. Um, they did get to eat the best food, though. They could only afford 12 volunteers because they spent so much on the food. Sure. <laughs> um, while they got roast beef and beefsteak, veal, pork, chicken, turkey, fish, oysters uh fruits vegetables pasteurized cream and milk and specially ordered canned foods that didn't have additives in them okay so they were eaten like kings right besides all the preservatives um so they were going to study each additive or whatever for six weeks at one dose um during those six weeks they would have like half of them would take poison for two weeks i'm sorry preservatives for two weeks um And half of them would eat clean food and then they'd switch every two weeks. And, um, it wasn't, it's not a great study design, (laughs) Yeah. but, and Wiley did admit that, but he was primarily worried about making people really sick. Yeah. He was really pretty paranoid about it. So he went with a design that would make him feel like they had two weeks to recuperate and he needed them to do that, even if it wasn't good study design. Sure. He just needed it. Um. So each meal, the volunteers had to record exactly how much of each food they ate. And they had to record their weight, temperature, their pulse. They had to they sign something committing to getting enough rest, getting enough exercise, being examined by a doctor twice a week. Um, and collecting all of their excretions mm-hmm. and bringing them all to Wiley's team at the lab every day. Yep. And so that's very... It's intense. That's pretty taxing requirements, I would say. Sure. Um, So how many people do you think dropped out after hearing all of that? Twelve. Right. Well, none, actually. None. They were all fine with it because that's apparently how little money they made. I see. That's what I'm thinking in my mind. The way they described it. Well, they did the money, so... and, And after reading all this, they were okay with it. So I'm thinking, like, man, they didn't pay government clerks very much. Yeah. In Washington, Back in the day. I don't know how much they pay them now. I doubt that's changed. Um, so they opened the dining room in November 1902. And they started with borax. That was their first uh, substance. So two scientific, scientific I'm going to put air quotes on that one. Studies on animals had been published recently. Uh, concluding borax was safe in low levels. And high levels would cause nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and cramping. But, like, these were, like, studies on mice, and I don't know how you can say something as safe and low levels when you study it for, like, two weeks, and you're like, well, they're fine. Um, anyways, they weren't great studies, but basically, the conclusions they wanted to point out, well, oh, the big picture of borax is in no way affects the health or well-being of an animal, is, is their conclusions from these studies. So Wiley was like, no, I gotta start with borax, we gotta debunk this, because that doesn't sound right to me. I'm worried about the, the chronic effects. That's what he was looking at because no one really studied that. It was like, oh, how much is a poisonous dose? Right. But not if I continue to have this dose for a year every day. Like, what's going to happen? So, unfortunately, the Washington Post caught wind of this story. And the Washington Post was um, sometimes a paper that might not print things that were entirely truthful if they weren't exciting enough. They like to add some spice. So they tried to follow the poison squads. Like, they smelled the story here. And they made up about a quarter of their stories completely out of thin air. That didn't happen at all. And about another third were true. And about another third were highly embellished. So um, the people were kind of... The public was kind of caught with this as well. They're really interested in it. And that Um,
1: left 8% for... Some other type of story. A quarter, a third, and a third.
0: Oh. I didn't remember the first number I said. I was just hoping it was a third. Okay. Um. So we. So maybe so, more so like, it was thirds. like It was like
1: a quarter were not true. A third were true. A third were embellished. And then they wrapped around it in about 8%.
0: Were then not Be- true not again. Not true again.
1: Okay. Thanks for. Makes thanks sense.
0: Thanks for correcting my math there. No problem.
1: That's why you brought me on.
0: <laughs> but <laughs> it is exactly the only reason you are sitting there. Mm-hmm. Um. The Washington Post actually nicknamed Wiley "Old Borax," hmm. and uh, apparently he thought it was pretty funny, so we on with it. It was fine. Yeah, of course. Um, so, as I said, the public it kind of caught the public eye and became a bit of a like a folk legend. Uh, for example, from a minstrel show in 1903, here is a song called "Song of the Poison Squad," and no, I am not going to sing it. Oh, I will Bye. just speak it. You are welcome.
1: It's like rapping.
0: Oh, no. No, I wasn't going to say it rhythmically. (laughs) Don't put that on me. (laughs) All right, fine. I'm not performing here. (laughs) Oh, we're the merriest herd of hulks that ever the world has seen. We don't shy off from your rough on rats or even from Paris green. By the way, those are rat poisons made of arsenic and copper. Sure. Anyways, cool. We're on the hunt for a toxic dope that's certain to kill sans fail, but tis a tricky, elusive thing and knows we are on its trail. For all the things that could kill, we've downed in many a gruesome wad, and still we're gaining a pound a day, for we are the poison squad. Hmm. Um, I didn't giggle that whole time. Good for me. I could see how that it could tough. be
1: fairly lyrical.
0: Yeah. I don't know what tune it went to, but that, you know, minstrels. Uh, So, in 1904, this is two years later, one and a half, basically, Wiley published the conclusions and report on um, borax. And um, it was only about, you know, 500 pages long. Sure. I'm sure a lot of people read that whole thing. Pretty brief. Helpful, right? So, do you have any guesses at all, Everett, as to how many of the 12 volunteers made it to the end of the study?
1: Hmm. Three
0: and a half. I think by definition, half of a human does not make it anywhere. I that means they didn't make it if they're a half human now.
1: He started only showing up for the two fresh weeks. Then he'd be absent (laughs) for two weeks and then show up for the two fresh weeks again.
0: Well, you're not wrong about them not trying to get out of eating the poison. I find it funny that they said they first tried to put the borax in the butter um, and then the men had to have like the bread with butter, you know, once every meal or whatever. Um, but then they just started to not eat the butter. And so they tried to hide it somewhere else and then they started to just not eat that. And it's like, you volunteered for the Like, you can't just not do the thing that you volunteer. Like, what? I don't understand. I mean, it's really terrible. Yeah. Study, but like, it was super confusing. And then they got like the chef and Wiley obviously just got like really mad at all of them and made them just take pills. Just pills, capsules of borax and just watch them while they swallow them every meal. Like, you know, like those stereotypical psych wards you see on TV where they're making sure. sure you didn't, like, put the medication in your cheek. They're just like, yeah, okay, you took your borax, good, God. Okay. <laughs> so it was pretty tough, apparently, to feed poison to these people, even though they signed up to eat poison. Um, half. Half is the number. Six of the volunteers made it to the end of the study. Um, because the other half were too sick to continue safely. And the side effects were appetite loss, fullness of the head, stomach distress, nausea, vomiting, clouding of the mental processes, and the very scientific sounding bad feeling. <laughs> mm mm-hmm. <laughs> Side effect one side effect of borax consumption is bad feelings. So yeah. don't do that, okay? Typically
1: typically emanates from the, you know, The central region of the Mm -hmm. body, Mm -hmm. bad feeling.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. That's Just to
1: clarify all the scientificness of that one for you.
0: Excellent. So Wiley suspected borax damaged the kidneys and possibly other organs. And he was right. Uh, Now we know borax can cause issues with the GI tract and your skin and your vascular system and especially your brain. So it can cause like rashes and like all the GI symptoms. Just mm-hmm. all of them. Uh, unconsciousness, depression, and renal failure.
1: Well, those are all great.
0: hmm Yeah. That sounds fun. I'm really glad that... I'm really glad we don't put borax in our butter anymore. Yeah. So, Wiley concluded, um, as he had been thinking, the problem isn't poisoning from high doses of borax. The problem is this cumulative effect of even, like, really low levels, but eaten consistently over time, um, so Wiley decided, he said on the whole, the results show that half gram per day is too much for the normal man to receive regularly. Uh, and then, you know, if it was too much for a normal man, what about women and children and the elderly or, or sure. sick, you know, um, they were all clearly inferior to normal men and could tolerate less of, I mean, it's probably true, but okay, that was the... That I get thinking.
1: it. The language is. The language was inferior in constitution. But yeah. <laughs> but. I have a suspicion that. It the... just means a
0: different thing now. Yeah. I think.
1: Okay. Now, Anyways. half a gram of borax, is there any indication of. I know that there's a wide range of products at the time, and they probably all ranged in dosage that you could get, but was it possible for a standard American at that time to possibly be eating half a gram a day? Or is that unknown?
0: You're going to love the next line. Oh, okay. Which is...
1: Let me set up the next line for you.
0: <laughs> the, the Wiley's team calculated that a person who ate a piece of buttered bread at each meal
1: mm-hmm. in a day yeah.
0: are consuming half a gram of borax. Oh, okay. M- more if they ever drank milk or ate meat. Okay. And not only that, but then there's the million other disgusting things. Salicylic acid, saccharin, sulfurous acid, formaldehyde, there's all that too. Sure. So, we are saying that the average person is quite likely to be exceeding this, yes.
1: But if they ate only bread and only vegetables, they might have gotten away from borax, is what you're saying.
0: Yeah, they'd be fine. Okay. There you go. No problem. Are you making a a point?
1: Just that all you had to do was not eat butter or milk or meats. Or really anything that's delicious. Oh, dear. I mean, there are other good things, but just to you'll know, be polarizing.
0: Okay. If that's what you're going for, then then I'll allow it. Yeah.
1: Because, like, let's face it. The best meal is meat slathered in butter with some milk poured on top.
0: <laughs> that's how I eat all my milks. <laughs> yes. Slathered on top of meats. Exactly. So... Now, by the time this report has been released, we're already a few months into the study on the next substance, which sure. was salicylic acid.
1: Okay.
0: Um, and, you know, the Poison Squad salicylic acid addition participants are, are experiencing already worse symptoms than with borax. Um,
1: are these the same six people?
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> No, for every substance, we're resetting with 12 new young, robust government males.
1: Yeah, victims. I mean, right, males. Got it.
0: Volunteers. They get free food. And apparently they (laughs) couldn't survive without it. So that doesn't make it it (laughs) exploitive at all. Yeah. Cool. So we have now, at this point, come to another attempt to pass a national food law with all the attention that the poison squad was getting in the newspapers and the public eye and stuff, um, it was a really good chance, or so certain senators thought, to try again. Um, But, you know, after so many bills had failed, the one thing that was clear was that whatever law was going to be passed was going to be linked with uh, medicines. Like, it was going to be a food, drink, and medicine law, or it wasn't going to happen. The doctors are actually pretty... Pretty powerful. Sure. And uh, they were getting really, really frustrated with the patent medicine mm. industry.
1: I was gonna ask if that was still around at this USA. time. Okay.
0: Um, and now for people that don't know what patent medicines are, they're fake medicines that are just without like, patents, That are by just the way. like yes, that no, patented is not a thing. You don't have to tell anyone what's in it. You can just say it like, cures everything, which they did say. Mm-hmm. And it was usually mostly just like liquor. Yep. And you know, maybe got a little bit popular due to prohibition. Anyways, I was going to say, it's
1: a great tactic for that.
0: So, patent medicines are interesting, and we might talk about them in the future. But yes, they're they're fake medicine, and the doctors were sick of it. So, we have the doctors in support of this pure food law being proposed, and we have the state health officials and women's groups, actually, and the general public. But um, opposed, we have the meatpacking industry, Mm-hmm. The railroads. They the ship a lot of meat. of well, cows, a lot okay, of meat. Yeah. Sure. The National Food Manufacturers Association. Yep. The tea and coffee importers.
1: I assume some the sort of f- union.
0: Fish packers. Well, I
1: guess a lot of those are unions.
0: Well it's and
1: lobbyist groups.
0: Um I would say that they're um congr- yeah, whatever like mm-hmm. the the word for like, you know, big tobacco like that. You know, the organizations yeah. that these big like, food. industries form. Lobbying groups. But yes, yeah. all these people just tend to lose money, right? Tea and coffee importers. Remember we talked about the coffee. They yeah. want to use the fake stuff because they're going to make money. Anyways, the dairy industry, the bakers, the whiskey blenders, and the proprietary association, which are apparently people that sell patent medications. So there you go. Oh,
1: they got rolled in. Got yes. it. Okay.
0: So the anti-regulation side used freedom. And it was super effective.
1: And states' rights?
0: Uh, well, here's, here's the argument. Any regulation on what a person could eat would be an attack on personal freedoms. Which, of course, is a straw man because, of course, they were regulating what you could sell, not what you could eat. But the argument against it was you should not be able as a government to regulate what I eat. Totally different thing. But it was a, the like you know quickest way to rally emotions, and sure. again, this never happens today. No. So the quote exactly was: "If the government could regulate products made by private industry, government control of people's lives would know no bounds."
1: Yeah, of course. How dare
0: they regulate private industry? That wouldn't be capitalism or Something. some argument back then. So. What do you do as the United States government when the public wants one thing and big business wants the opposite? You you obviously know the answer to this. You pander to big business and stick it to the people. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Well, you know where your money comes from.
0: And so the bill died again before it got any sort of uh, reading. Cool. So, Wiley, getting kind of frustrated. They're all getting a little frustrated, not going to lie. So he decided to, to put together, a, like, a demonstration, a public demonstration um, at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. Okay. So his department planned this exhibit for over a year. They wanted to shock the public. They wanted to make them all outraged, uh, especially all the housewives, because women's groups were actually pretty powerful sure. um, in their lobbying and campaign-like... Um, I don't even know what the word would be by like persuading people to yeah. vote for um, different candidates. Um, so here's what they did is they asked food commissioners from each state to send them examples of adulterated foods available in their state. And he was given two acres as a display ground for this exhibit.
1: Wow. That's, right? Like that's huge. That's a right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, but as the samples of these foods started to arrive, it quickly became obvious that two acres was going to be way too small. Mm-hmm. Way too small. So, unfortunately, they had to, like, cut a lot of it, and they picked just the 2,000 worst examples of food, which to me sounds, like, crazy. Um, I don't know if I could stomach walking through 2,000 items in two acres of the food I have to eat every day, knowing how gross it is now. Cool. Sounds awesome. Yeah. So um, some sent notes to Wiley along with their food samples. Here's one from um, a North Dakota food chemist named Edwin Ladd. While potted chicken and potted turkey are common products, I have never yet found a can in the state which really contained in determinable quantity either chicken or turkey.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: So cool. Um, And the fair's head of publicity sent out a news release titled Lessons in Food Poisoning, which began, If you want to have your faith in mankind rather rudely shaken, take the time to look about in the exhibit of the state food commissioners. And it ended like this. Down a long list we might go, telling the secrets of those who are putting dollars into their pockets by putting poisons into our foods. Ouch. So as you can imagine, some people are mad right now really mad, but they decided to try not to raise a stink about it because they thought it would just create more public awareness and publicity around the whole thing. So for now, all the, well, all the food, every food related anything is just kind of like furious, but deciding not to, not to act on it. Right. Um,
1: Like to not draw attention to it, basically.
0: Correct. Yeah. Okay. So now, now we're going to jump to 1905 and hear about the next proposed food bill, which was in part influenced by the public response to this exhibit. Um, And the opposition had a different strategy this time. Hmm. So they pressured a senator to introduce a bill transferring regulatory authority over food and drink from the Agricultural Department to the Department of Commerce and Labor. let you guess which one was more business-friendly. Yeah. So they are just trying to just, you guys stop trying to tell us anything. We're going to, we're going to get out of here. Um, so media mogul William Randolph Hearst, and you might have heard of this man because of the famous Patty Hearst. Um, or just the media mogul part. Yeah. He's a pretty big deal. Um, he wrote this in the New York Evening Journal. There's a bill in the Senate of the United States called the Pure Food Bill. Its purpose is to prevent food adulteration, the swindling and poisoning of the public. Nobody in the Senate says a word against this bill. Nobody dare go on record, of course, in behalf of adulteration, yet it is certain this bill will not be passed. So it's almost like there's a bunch of people that are going to vote to kill it but would never on their life publicly admit that they supported the killing of this bill. Which is sounding just so familiar. Um... Yeah. So to to be clear, there there is the pure food bill, and the opposition opposed that bill I just mentioned earlier to just stop the process of that. Like this is there is two bills right now. Okay. The pure food bill and this opposition bill trying to take control away from the Department of Agriculture. Okay. Um. So yes, certain certain it was that it won't be passed. It it was not passed. Duh. But luckily, the opposition's bill was defeated. But they did go to vote on that one. (laughs) They haven't voted yet in a pure food bill, but they did vote on this one. It was defeated by a mid-sized margin. And and then we move on with, with Hearst writing in his paper, the business of Congress was to take care of businessmen. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty obvious. It's just funny that, you know, Powerful people are saying it just in public, they're just saying it and everyone's like, Yeah. This is cool. Yeah. We're gonna stick with this strategy. So it also comes out that a conglomerate of manufacturers um are prepared to spend two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to defeat any regulations that come up. However if they have to spend that money, they're gonna do it. So seven point six five million US dollars today. Right. So that's how much they had in their their kind of war chest there. And they'd already made, you know, really big contributions to um, certain senators' campaigns that they thought were friendly to their their causes. Um, They they referred to them as pro-business allies. They've donated to their pro-business allies. Um, And yeah, no wonder nothing got done. Yeah, so I'm going to introduce now another player in this story. Um, A promising young author, Upton Sinclair. Now, he ended up being an extremely important author in the 1900s and a social activist. I thought for sure that I had, like, I knew who he was, but I'm pretty sure I learned about him on a Jeopardy clue. Okay. So I knew he was an author, and yeah, I'm pretty sure I learned about him on Jeopardy because I don't know any of the author stuff on Jeff. i had i learned a lot about that stuff i know none of it um so he's a socialist though let's throw that out there to start he's a socialist and um he is a lot of his writing is focused on workers rights and unions and that type of thing sure um so he was writing a novel about the horrifying conditions in the meatpacking industry He was inspired by a two-month-long strike by butchers in nine different cities across the U.S. that had just um, come to an end and only came to an end because of some really dirty tricks and union-busting, strike-breaking type of activities on the part of the, like, meatpacking companies, unfortunately. So, Upton Sinclair was trying to expose how horrible the conditions were for the workers, was trying to get them to unite, you know, that type of... That type of thing. Um, so he spent seven weeks in Chicago's stockyards trying to blend in with the other workers and interview them. And ob- he, like he would go into mm-hmm. the packing houses and just observe and just watch. Um, so this book would eventually be titled The Jungle. And it would go on to be his most influential novel. It was fiction. It was like based on his observation, yeah, okay. but it was a fictional story about a Lithuanian immigrant trying to achieve the American dream. And in the end, he's destroyed nearly, I guess, by the working conditions at the meat processing company he worked at. And he loses his family, his friends, and his health. And in the end, he finds hope embracing the concept of socialism. So it's a, sure, you know, it's a socialist book. But there is a focus on the meatpacking industry. And I haven't grossed you out in a while. So you're welcome for that. <laughs> but, okay, it's probably over now. I want to tell you a little bit about the things found in his book, which, you know, again, was all based on interviews, observations. It was corroborated by witnesses. Um, we this is pretty sure. So, he wrote of diseased cattle arriving by railroad in Chicago to be butchered. Okay. Okay. Quote. Which, first of all, weren't supposed to be butchered, but diseased cows weren't allowed to be butchered. They had that law. Anyways. Yeah, but... But, who I guess was? it's
1: like the Traveling Wilburys song uh, in the Monkey Man. The line is, in Jersey, anything's legal, long as man, is, or man, as long as you don't get caught.
0: Yes, that's exactly... That's perfect... So, here's a quote from the book. It was a nasty job killing these, for when you pledged your knife into them, they would burst and splash foul, smelly stuff into your face, smothering your mouth and nostrils with their fetid pus and blood. That's good. Gross. Yeah. Yeah. It's very gross. Pickled beef was bathed in acid. That's how they pickled it. They just bathed it in acid. Um, the men working that line actually all had their fingers eaten away from exposure to the acid over and over. Um, And then they were useless and they could no longer make any money. And, you know, they died penniless in a gutter, I'm guessing. So TB ran rampant in both the animals and the workers since it was like so crowded and filthy. Mm-hmm. So a lot of tuberculosis, tuberculosis everywhere and and awesome germs. In the rendering rooms, there was these big open vats of acid set into the floor. Which, like, set into the floor. I had to read that again because I missed it. Because, like, they couldn't have made that more dangerous if they tried.
1: Well. Okay. Did they have, like... Did they make it so that all of the rooms, like, incline towards the vats? Because that would be more dangerous. Or put, like, rollers on inclines down Mm -hmm. towards the vats? Mm -hmm. Because that could be more dangerous. Hmm. for sure
0: you missed your calling i guess
1: yeah I, I i suspect that we could we could probably go back in time and make those rooms more dangerous okay yeah
0: you're technically correct
1: yeah i'm, I'm thinking of like if you ever watch wa- wipe out right the wall that like has the the fists come out and try to punch them into the into the mud yes they could have walls like that
0: <laughs> knocking
1: them towards the acid that that'd help too
0: okay You know, like, again, you're technically correct. That is more dangerous, yes. The best kind of correct. Best kind of correct. Um, So, the acid was to break down animal carcasses. And when workers fell in, which, yes, is a semi-regular occurrence, um, there was, quote, never enough of them left to be worth exhibiting by the time they were fished out. Hmm. So decaying meat, often fuzzy with mold, would be dosed with borax and glycerin and dumped into hoppers and made over again for home consumption. Workers would put poisoned bread around the factory to kill rats, which, as you can imagine, were all over the place in the stockyards. And then the rats, the bread, and the meat would be swept together into the hoppers. Um, It was alleged that parts of the workers sometimes made their way into the ground meat as well, I'm assuming accidentally. Let's go with accidentally, like fingers. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so, after reading this, the publisher that had signed the deal with Upton Sinclair for this book changed their mind. And they said it was simply too gruesome to be believable. So that sucked. So they backed out of the contract. And he spent a long time, got a lot of rejections, shopping this book around. He finally found a potential new deal at Doubleday Page and Company. Yes, that Doubleday. The same one that is still a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, first, they wanted to make sure, the publishers, that is, that they weren't going to be on the losing end of a lawsuit over this type of book. Right. So, they actually sent a copy of the manuscript to the Chicago Tribune newspaper to ask them if it was accurate in any way. The paper responded with a 24-page rebuttal of everything in the book. And Doubleday was like, Shocked, calls Sinclair into his office. What's going on? How How is this all fake? Sinclair actually provided, like, evidence for each of his claims. He had medical studies. He had researched the heck out of this book. And he, like, proved how the Chicago Tribune was wrong at every, every step. And he had witnesses, whatever. And so then, of course, Doubleday gets suspicious. He thinks... This is simply too strong of a denial. Something's going on here. Why would you put this much effort into denying this? So he decides to send his lawyer? (laughs) I don't know. And one of their editors. Okay. To the stockyards to investigate. He wants their impressions. Um, So what they found disgusted and horrified them. And uh, they were able to secure public statements about the conditions and, like, the practices in the yards to back up everything in the book. Um, So, Double double Day signed the deal. Good. Pretty good, yeah. Um, So, December 5th, 1905. This is where we're going to jump to now. A few months. And it's the end of the year speech to Congress. President Roosevelt finally drops... His public opposition to the passing of a pure food and drug law. I see. He, in fact, even recommends to Congress they should consider passing a law soon.
1: Okay. You should consider That's really, doing that soon. Really strong direction it there. Was
0: so strong. What a strong message he sent. Yeah. But, you know, great. With I the mean, president on board, yeah. things might be moving, right? Um, like another supporter new supporter of the pure food movement was the HJ Heinz company out of Pittsburgh mm-hmm. who was now very successfully marketing ketchup made from tomatoes
1: yeah
0: as opposed to stewed pumpkin rides dyed red which was the common ketchup okay um and it was preservative free but ah. here's the rub is that any company could say those things about their products and, and didn't have to back it up Heinz wanted to have the the need for other companies to prove it because they knew they could prove it. Right. They wanted to make more money obviously, but they were on the right side of things. Sure. <laughs> so with all this support, a senator introduced a pure food bill. Again. And unfortunately, it seemed like the president's support had kind of encouraged the opposition to like really unleash their dirtiest And Mm -hmm. worst tricks, I don't know. So basically, the Republican leader of the Senate, who is one Nelson Aldrich of Rhode Island, again plays the personal freedoms card. Are we to take up this question as to what a man shall eat and what a man shall drink and put him under severe penalties if he is eating or drinking something different than what the chemists of the agricultural department think desirable? Which, like, again, <laughs> again, if you have to change the argument that the other side is making in order to denigrate it, then then you're not doing a good job debating here. But that's what they went to every single time. Right. It's so familiar, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> no one is and no one was ever considering making a law where they punish the consumer for eating borax or drinking formaldehyde, you know? <laughs> yeah. So... So, he's awesome. And it will not surprise you to know that he was a wealthy man who had made his fortune as a wholesale grocer. Yes. So, being the Senate leader, somehow he had the power to just refuse to bring the the bill to vote. He was just like, no, we're not voting on it. Really? I don't understand. It's very confusing to me, and they don't try to explain it well in the book. They okay. just said he blocked the bill from the floor. It wouldn't go to a vote. It couldn't go to a vote. But they don't talk about why. Okay. Because I assume it's a lot of explaining about how the American political systems work. And I do not have that insider knowledge. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you're interested in this, I would suggest independent research because I don't have the answers. Somehow he could block the vote. And that's what he did. He just refused. I don't get why one person has that much power in the government. It seems like a recipe for a disaster. Uh, so here we are. Um, it is the doctors to the rescue. Hmm. In February 1906, and yes, it has been two months of this stalemate, the AMA, the American Medical Association, it's um, they summoned Aldrich to this private meeting. And as I said earlier, they're mad about the patent medicine. So they need this bill to pass. So... They told him they're planning on rallying all 135,000 doctors in the country to get this passed. And they would specifically contact every doctor in Rhode Island, Aldrich's state, right? Yeah. Um, So that they could persuade all their patients to not vote for Aldrich. And they were going to ruin his political career. Does he maybe want to consider changing his mind? And obviously, this was a good plan because doctors were really at the time, were very well-respected in their community, and people will listen to, to their opinions pretty highly. Um, so that afternoon, Aldrich sent a message that he would allow the vote to go through. Mm, uh,
1: good career move.
0: I mean, because it's, you know, so long ago, things took time. They didn't actually vote until February 26th, but um, it passed 63 to 4 in the Senate. Wow. Yeah. Aldrich abstained from voting. You don't know mm-hmm. why he didn't just vote no. I, again, I don't know how that all works, but...
1: So we'll call it 63 um, to 5, then.
0: <laughs> and so the USA finally pulls its head out of the sand and comes to join the rest of the developed world, except for the part where the bill has to go to the House first. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's dead again. Um, the one shining beam of hope here is that the AMA then contacts Wiley and says... You just warn us the next time you're bringing this bill, we'll do what we just did with some of the House members and it'll be fine.
1: (laughs) Right. Some blackmail. It's okay. Not blackmail. It's It's coercion.
0: I don't know. I guess. Do what we want or ruin your career in a legal way, though. Oh, legally ruin your career. There's Extortion, some,
1: some grift. Yeah,
0: I don't know. They all mean slightly different things, and I mm-hmm. am not a lawyer. I, yeah, I don't do do know not the, the exact to one about anything to do with the law. Um, so checking back in with the Poison Squad, our salicylic acid trials are, um, are winding down, and with salicylic acid, there's this general attitude among the public that it's pretty safe because it, humanity, human. I don't know how long we've been using it, but humanity has been using this for a while. So they're like, it must be fine. We're all fine. We've
1: survived this far.
0: Yeah. Um, but as with the borax, Wally was trying to remind everyone that chronic exposure is going to be the issue here. Right. Um, it was salicylic acid was in so many different foods, drinks, whatever, that, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a low amount. And, uh, he's, he's proved that in his study. He reported that the symptoms of a salicylic acid consumption um, at two grams a day were chronic stomach pain, nausea, appetite loss, and weight loss. And so that's two grams a day. Keep in mind, in the previous episode, we talked about the fact that there were wines Wiley tested with up to four grams of salicylic acid in one bottle. Right. And we're saying two grams is excessive, very excessive, right, to cause these symptoms. Um, so, two out of, two for two here on, uh, this is clearly an issue and I told you so. Right. Only he didn't say that, unfortunately.
1: Well, uh, would have been a great moment for him. Yeah. I told you so.
0: I mean, he might have done it. He seemed like an interesting character. So as this report was coming out, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle was being published too, finally. But Sinclair was unhappy. Doubleday had made him cut almost thirty thousand words out of his novel, out of the parts about socialism and workers' rights. He okay. he you know, Sinclair wants to write the next great American novel, inspire the masses to unionize, and the publishers didn't think the American public wants to hear about the socialism stuff. They didn't think the book would sell well. They so- don't want to be seen as supporting all that socialism either you know they're pretty good exposing
1: but not about the
0: the... implication that they might be socialists right okay let's not do that so the reviews of the book though are extremely positive Um, it ended up being published in 17 languages worldwide and international celebrities like winston churchill and george bernard shaw were raving about how good it was and recommending everyone read it um the public was disgusted. Yeah. Riveted. Um, but again, Sinclair was not pleased. No one cared at all about his socialist ideals. And he was really trying to go for something here. And they only cared about the gross food parts. Um, he, he said, I, I do like this quote. He said, I aimed for the public's heart. And by accident, I hit them in the stomach.
1: <laughs> That's a good quote. Yeah, okay.
0: So, President Roosevelt having just read Wiley's report, then reads this book, The Jungle. And uh, he writes a letter to Sinclair. He invites him to the White House to discuss the realities of the stockyard. And then he spends, like, pages going on and on about how he did not admire the book's socialist ideals. Okay. Anyways, Basically, I just a recommend. I just found that a little funny. It was totally. It was like, "Please come discuss this with me." Good book, but by the way, and then for pages about how dare you with the socialism.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: And, so, the meatpacking industry, especially the Chicago stockyards, are really happy. Pretty, pretty furiously trying to suppress this book.
1: Oh, right. And I they're pretty so. furious,
0: just in general. Um, when it first started to gain popularity, they were trying to pressure newspapers to not review it and libraries to not carry it and bookstores to not sell it. Uh they
1: That must have increased demand for it <laughs> drastically.
0: <laughs> they gave up on their playing it cool strategy, okay? Yeah. This is this is a big deal. Pretty much
1: every banned book ever has gained popularity from being banned.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um so Jay Ogden Armour. He was one of the titans of meatpacking in Chicago. He sent his lawyers to bribe Doubleday with just a huge advertising contract, if they would just please stop publishing the book in Europe, please, because it like we don't need them to know. Like these are these are our domestic issues. Let's keep him at home, kind of thing was the argument. And so Doubleday was actually leaning towards taking this offer because. I mean, they weren't asking him to stop publishing in the U.S. And he was pretty patriotic, you know. He ended up uh, ended up saying um, he did not care to wash our dirty laundry in all the capitals of Europe. Sure. So, yeah, he was going to do it. But then, then the lawyer pulls a can of corned beef out of his briefcase and puts it on the desk with a smile. And then, for some reason, Doubleday just flips out and is... Furious, apparently had a very short temper, this man. And this seeing this can of beef or the implication that he should eat gross beef, I don't know what exactly it was, but it made him so angry, um, he called the attorney a moral degenerate and threw him out of the office. So then the book was not squashed. Um, Interesting how that worked out. Meatpacking interests did plant stories in friendly newspapers, of besmirching Sinclair's reputation and his moral character. And they said he spent more time in whorehouses than the stockyards when he was in Chicago. How could he know anything? Um, but the cat's out of the bag and the public's outraged. And so Roosevelt's feeling a lot of pressure now. Um... People were specifically demanding he gets to the bottom of these claims. Like, what's going on? Aren't there inspections of the stockyards? I thought we did have some laws, like, you know, no diseased cows. What's up with that? So Roosevelt's like, that's a, you know, good question. I don't know. So asked the Department of Agriculture, what's up with that? inspection division, are you doing anything? Um, he didn't really get a satisfactory answer. But let's just say in the jungle, the Packers paid the government inspectors to look the other way or just not show up ever. Right. So I assume a similar thing um, happened here. And so when Sinclair visited the White House, Roosevelt actually told him he's going to bypass the Agricultural Division and send two independent investigators to Chicago. We're going to see what's going on there. It'll be a surprise. Let's, let's figure this out, you know. What you meet with my investigators, Sinclair, tell them all the stuff to look out for and the, you know, who to talk to, what questions to ask. Seemed great, right? Good idea. Um, a few days later, Sinclair gets home, gets a letter from a friend in Chicago, who was already in his mailbox when he got home. So immediately, basically told him that the meat packers had been warned <laughs> about this inspection, probably by the White House, and they were cleaning up. Everything's getting cleaned up. So Sinclair now okay. is, is, suspicious he's kind of worried about roosevelt's follow-through here right starts digging into his past a little and he actually learns the meat packers had quietly donated two hundred thousand dollars to roosevelt's campaign in 1904 which 6.1 million dollars i mean even with
1: today's equivalent you're saying yeah yeah
0: even with the lack of campaign finance laws in the u.s i have to think that's too much from one okay i can't say that i don't know I I really hope it's not. I really hope it's too much. Anyways, so much money. So, of course, Sinclair's a little paranoid. Of course. Roosevelt, maybe he's hushing things up on purpose, covering things up, but Sinclair is still trying to get the truth out there, so he persuades his longtime journalist friend in Chicago to meet with these, this Neil and Reynolds were their names, these investigators, and find them interviews and hook them up. So he's like really just trying to make sure they find something while they're there. Um, So, what did they find? Um, If you guessed that they weren't going to find anything because the meatpackers cleaned everything up, you would have guessed wrong. Okay. They did clean. And then it was nasty.
1: Instead of super nasty.
0: Yeah. It's one of those, like, oh, so this is what you think clean looks like. Oh, God, what was it like before? Got it. Okay, so. We're going to conclude with a little bit of teaser here because I'm going to tell you what's in the report. And I'm going to tell you that the report is what leads to this food law finally getting passed. But I'm not going to tell you anything about how yet because this has been long enough as it is. Sure. So here's the report, which was very, very troubling to Roosevelt, by the way. Things were no better than what was in Sinclair's book, if not much worse. Um, and so this is, again, after they cleaned up. this is a quote this is all going to be a quote from the report sure many inside rooms where food is prepared are without windows deprived of sunlight and without direct communication with the outside air usually the workers toil without relief in the humid atmosphere heavy with the odors of rotting wood decayed meats stinking awful and entrails the tables on which the meat was handled the tubs and other receptacles were generally of wood most of which were water soaked and half cleaned the privies, as a rule, were sections of workrooms enclosed by thin wooden partitions, ventilating out into the workroom. In a word, we saw meat shoveled from filthy wooden floors, piled on tables rarely washed, pushed from room to room in rotten box carts, and in all of which processes it was in the way of gathering dirt, splinters, floor filth, and expectoration of tuberculosis and other diseased workers. So great. Let's yeah. eat that. Yeah, also in the report. One time, a dead pig had fallen out of a box cart right into the privy.
1: Mm. And everyone, Mm. I'm
0: sure, knows what a privy is. It's a hole in the floor where you poop. Yeah. And and pee. That too.
1: Uh, Yes, you can do that Um, too.
0: So, and right in front of the inspectors, mind you, they fished it out and sent it along the line with the other carcasses. And so Neil goes, hey, supervisor, what's that all about there? That didn't seem right. And he was told, no, it's fine. It'll get cooked later, so it's fine. Which, A, gross, and B, wasn't entirely true. Uh, a considerable amount of the meat went into sausages, which were neither cooked nor sterilized. Hmm. So, the again, they that right in front of the inspector. So, the leavings from the sausages were piled into a heap that also included old floor sweepings of dry meat scraps, Rope strands and other rubbish. Reynolds asked, What is this pile for? And was told with no hesitation, That gets ground up and used to make our potted ham.
1: Potted ham.
0: Potted ham, I looked this up. Etc. I looked this up. It's like what I was saying before about the method of putting the fat, pouring the fat into the can. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it a little different from canned ham, potted and canned or Slightly different is what I'm trying to say. Oh, okay. It's, wait, no. It makes it worse. I don't, I don't think it makes it any better. I'm just explaining. Yeah. Um, so, I'll just end on this note that it's it's like none of these guys had ever met a health inspector before. <laughs> Which would explain a few things. I'm just, I'm in shock about how lackadaisically they just, an inspector, I'll do these just absolutely vile, disgusting things right in front of your face. That's how little problem I have with it. Cool. So yeah, next week I'll tell you how Roosevelt and Congress reacted to this report and how the public eventually reacted to it when they were allowed to know about it. Um, And we'll finally get around to hearing the long-awaited pure food legislation. And I'll give you some kind of more final results and figures from the Poison Squad. Because, you know, I did name the series that. It's a catchy name. I should probably have some of it actually in the in the story, right? We
1: we did talk about the poison squad a little bit this episode. Mm, petite, petite. Yeah, just a Anyways. little bit.
0: Um, and then, yeah, hopefully, I'll find some totally on-topic food or chemistry anecdotes to to share as well to end this on a, on a with a bang. Sure. Uh, so we're gonna say goodbye until next week. Uh, thank you for listening to Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: And I hope you learned something new.